I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, um, chapter 23, and beginning in verse 26. Uh, This is um, all in preparation for uh, Good Friday and Easter, and part of this season is to just re-immerse ourselves in the old, old story um, of what Christ has done for us. I am going to, for those who... um, Sometimes it's just as good to just read the passage uh, in its entirety before we get into it so you can kind of get a lay of the land. And so I'm going to read a rather larger portion um, through verse 49 this morning. And uh, I'm going to have you stand in a moment as I read. But before I do, I just wanted to make one, um, maybe a focus comment on what you're about to read. You know, there are people who come to the Bible um, as a kind of a a self-help book, thinking that... If you figure out the right principles of life, then somehow by your own strength you can put them into practice and your life will go better. And uh, to be sure, the Bible is filled with instructions for us, but it is not primarily um, a book of instructions or what we're supposed to do. Um, The Bible is more about what God has done uh, on our behalf um, that enables us to actually do. And... So the reason I say that is because there is no moral instruction in what we're about to read. Um, It doesn't tell us what to do. Um, The entire passage is what God has done in the person of Christ. And the point of it is not to do anything other than to know it, to trust it, believe it, and, and to love it. And that really is the major aim this morning, is to for us to reimmerse ourselves in what God has done. So with that said, let me ask if you would stand with me in honor of God's holy word as I read. Beginning in verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, now Jesus is going to make four statements in what I'm about to read, and I just want you to log them away. These are the four, four final times he speaks in the Gospel of Luke before he dies. In the middle of verse 28, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged uh, railed at him, saying, Are you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, 
for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, this is statement number three, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. You can take your seats. Will you uh, pause with me to ask the Lord for um, his presence to be in a, a word this morning? Father, I, I, I ask that you would, in, in a gracious and merciful and powerful way, enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see and to behold, to rejoice in, to believe, to celebrate the, the greatness of what you have done and who you are for us in Jesus Christ. And I pray that our, our minds would be expanded, but more than that, that our, that our affections would be stirred and awakened and that we would see um, in these dark verses um, just the amazing brilliance of your son amidst his suffering. I pray for power for those listening. I pray for power for me speaking. I pray for um, clarity, and I pray for the forcefulness of your word, and, and I pray for um, you to just break hearts, mend hearts, encourage, convict. And I pray this in the name of Christ, and by his power, amen. So back in 2003, uh, my wife calls me, kind of leads into where I want to go with this this morning, um, and I happen to be at church here, and she said, Dan, you got to come over and look at this house. And uh, it was a strange call because we weren't looking for a house. Uh, we already lived in a house. And so over lunch, I, I met her at the address she gave to me, and, and I pulled up in front of the house, and I'm like, oh, no. I know she's going to want to buy this house. That's just, I know. That's why I'm here, Right. So I walked in with her. She surveyed the house with me, and, and honestly, we were both, in an instant, we were both hooked, and we fell in love with the place. And next thing you know, um, we were signing papers. We were boxing up all of our possessions. We were renting trucks, and we were expending lots and lots of energy moving all of our stuff into this new place, all because I stopped <laughs> by an address, you know, and we both saw something that we just fell in love with. It's just it's amazing how when you find something that you desire, something that you consider to be beautiful or worthy, how much it motivates you and then how much productivity comes with that. The same thing comes with car buying, right? It's, it's, a, it's a really dangerous thing, and most of you know this, to just decide, hey, Sunday afternoon, what do you want to do? Uh, let's go out and uh, let's just test drive cars just for the fun of it. That's an extremely dangerous thing, right? Because you get in it and it's like there's no rattles. 
You know, it's quiet. You can actually hear your music on the Bose sound system, whether it's, I don't know, Wagner or Bob Dylan, whatever your choice is. And, and it's that, there's that, that sweet smell of a new car that lasts like five minutes until you get it off the lot, and somehow it changes. And, and it, you find yourself sometimes, maybe more than, uh, than infrequently, you find yourself signing papers and calling your insurance guy and figuring out how you're going to sell your old car that now is, seems so terrible. It's just the experience of a new car, right? Uh, that's, that's true of babies, too, you know? <coughs> Not so much anymore, but I had a little bit of a worry when my wife would hold somebody else's baby. And uh, she, she would always, when she has a newborn in her hand, she always likes to smell it. Sorry, sweetheart, I don't mean to embarrass you. She'd say, this is her own direct quote. She goes, oh, this is such a good smeller. And I know whenever she does that, you know, she's like, oh, wouldn't you like another one of these? Two, three, you know. It's a dangerous thing to, to hold a baby in your arms. And not for a guy so much. But, but for, because there's something glorious and wonderful and sweet about a, a cuddly little cute baby. Now, each of those three little, I don't know, analogies are meant to, to uh, illustrate a central point. Um, that is, um, it, it shows us how we're hardwired as, as humans. And it's by God's design that we were, we were hardwired that way. It's just that that hardwiring has been distorted. That is to say, we, when, when, when we experience or we discover, um, we encounter something that we think is beautiful, desirable, worthy, wonderful, astonishing, or the Bible would say glorious, then, then the heart naturally is drawn to it, motivated by it, and it, and it, and it ends up with this, all the, this work and productivity as a result of it. I mean, take the example of the baby. A lot of productivity when it comes to raising the baby. And uh, that's, that's how, how we were hardwired. That's, that's, that's just, is when we discover something truly beautiful, truly desirable, truly worthy, truly glorious, then our heart is stirred to, to, to go after it hardcore. The problem, of course, is that this is where the distortion is, is that we often find ourselves um, seeking after things uh, that are broken and not worthy of all of our affection. You know, houses fall apart. Um, just as soon as you finish one room, another room needs to be redone. Cars, they develop rattles. Pretty soon they don't run very well or burn smoke. And babies become teenagers, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the world in which we live, and, and yet oftentimes that's, that's, what, that's, what motivates, that's what motivates the world around us and people around us. Are, are, and it may not be one of those three things, of children, house, or car, the, but those are three of the things that people tend to like a lot. But there's something that is, and this is, brings us to the passage, there's something that is, that is so much more than any created thing. Um, it's, it's, it's not just vast, it's beyond vast. It's... It's what Paul calls the unsearchable. You never come to the end of it. You never discover all of it. You never comprehend all of it. You never apprehend all of it. Riches of Christ. There's, there's, there's no end to how far and deep you can go in the understanding of, of who he is and what he's done. And that is to be. And, it, and that's something that only can be done by the, by the Spirit of God. It's not something that we can decide tonight or today, this morning, I'm going to open my eyes all the more to see the glory of Christ. Now, uh, what you can do is humble yourself and say, I, I don't see it, 
the way I should, but I want to. And I know that the only person who can take me there is the Spirit of God in my heart through the revelation of Scripture to bring me full front center to see the glory of Christ and to see affections stirred and motivations so that we actually want to do it with Christ as the motivational center of our lives. That's, 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 that's where our Christianity comes from. And that's where any working and serving and productivity, if that's what you want to call it, comes from is this this. this this worthy thing that we've discovered in the person of Jesus. Now, why do I say that in such a dark passage, right? We just read about his crucifixion. Now, I've alluded to it over the last couple of weeks, but um, now it's going to hopefully come out even more vividly and clearly, is that within these dark moments, we see beauty come out. We see the true colors of, of what has always been there in the person of Jesus Christ like come out in the direst of circumstances and in, in, in absolute abject humiliation. He, we see his colors beautiful and shining, shine, shining through. You know, you've heard the statement. It's almost proverbial now. What, if you want to see what's in a man, put him in a pressure situation and what comes out is who he really is. Well, there's, there's no more pressure um, there's no more of a pressure cooker than what Jesus is going through and what comes out is beautiful. And, and, and this morning, simply, I just pray that your affections for him are stirred or if you don't know him, that God might, by an act of miracle, open your eyes to the truth. So in what follows, I want to follow those four statements that Jesus made. And I'm going to kind of hang our thoughts on four words uh, just to kind of give it a structure. Um, Word number one, warning. Word number two, forgiving. Word number three, saving. And word number four is atoning. Those four words um, are connected to the beauty and the worthiness and the glory of Jesus. The first one, warning. Now, trial is over. Jesus is left. He's en route to the cross, and I know most of you know this, but maybe some of you don't. At the point, at the point where this text lies, right behind me, the words in yellow are, are Jesus. Uh, Jesus has been brutally beaten, probably disfigured. Um, he is utterly exhausted to the point where he cannot hold his cross up anymore, and he's probably stumbling along, barely able to carry his own weight. So he is absolutely exhausted and in pain. And there's this group of of women, it's a larger group of people, but some of them women apparently, who are coming along with him and mourning and lamenting him. Now these are, these are not his followers from Galilee. He refers to them as daughters of Jerusalem. And the content of what he says here tells us that these are not his loyal followers. These are, if you will, customary wailers or lamenters who are, who are like a funeral dirge marching alongside him. And in the context of this, that's the context, Jesus speaks in pain, headed to the cross. He says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when, we will say, when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that have not bore and the breasts that have never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For, they do these things, or for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is is dry. This is an interesting moment where the, 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 more text is given to this group of women than to anybody else 
in chapter 23. And the words that Jesus says here are, are a, a, a word of, of warning. It's like, don't, don't lament for me. Like, lament for yourselves. Because Jesus knows full well that a day is coming. A day is coming that is a direct result of their rejection of the Messiah. That is the rejection of Christ, the rejection of their king, them murdering Jesus. And the result of their rejection of Jesus is, is, to put it shortly and bluntly, judgment and wrath. Judgment and wrath. Now, I know in, in our 21st century sophisticated thinking, and I put sophisticated in quotes, um, that such ideas of God's wrath seem passe, old school, a relic of the past. But you and I know from reading the Bible that, that, that God's wrath is a very serious thing, and it, is, it has entered human history in tangible times and ways um, that have been deadly, um, wiping out entire civilizations, whether that be the flood or Sodom and Gomorrah or the plagues upon Egypt. Like These are times in which God just opens up the heavens and, and allows the fullness of his anger to touch down in human history. And those are, those are, those are not um, mild experiences as Jesus tests to here because that's what he's talking about. The time's coming when you're going to wish you didn't have any kids at all because you're going to see the misery in your own kids and the death and you're going to think to yourself, I shouldn't have ever had them. This is so bad. Or it'll get to the point when you don't want to live anymore. You're going to ask rocks to fall upon you or hide you from the wrath of God. That's, 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 that's these words. He's lament, lament for yourself, not for me, for what's coming. The days are coming and these are dark, dark things. Now, I, I know that in times past, former generations, uh, preachers used to be fire, hell, hell, and brimstone preachers, maybe a, not very much by, about the love of God, but a whole lot, of, a lot about the wrath of God, and we seem to be living in a time in which nobody wants to talk about wrath anymore, everyone wants to talk about the love of God, but you can't understand the love of God without understanding that the wrath of God is real, and it's coming, and it's dark. And in this particular case, what Jesus is referring to here, when he says daughters of Jerusalem, he's talking about a very specific event that did happen. 70 AD, some of you historian-oriented people know that. When Titus led the Roman legions against Jerusalem because they rebelled. And the things that happened within and outside that city are unspeakable. Everything from cannibalism to starvation to hundreds of thousands of people slaughtered and many crucified. That's an event in history that's not even recorded in the Bible, but it happened. The day came. It was a dark day. And here, Jesus, when Jesus warns them. He's like, well, mourn for yourself because this day is, is on the map. It's, it's a sign of, 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 of care, of concern. At this moment, he's, he's more concerned about the people around him who are headed towards this dark day on the calendar than he is about his own pain and he is about his own future. That's, but that's who, that's who Jesus is. Like right here, don't lament for me, lament for yourself. And maybe it's a last call for repentance. I don't know. What I do know and what we can see in this is that amidst all of it, all of the present tense exhaustion and pain and all the anticipation of what's still to lie ahead, at this moment, his eyes are on the people around him, not on himself. And that is, that is a beautiful thing. 
That's so unlike a fallen humanity, right? I mean, you know, it gets a little too hot in the room. Um, when there's babies screaming in the back of the plane. When the traffic's tough, going to work. What comes out of us? Usually it's more self-centeredness. You want to cut somebody off. You want to kick the dog. You want to scream at this flight attendant, whatever it is. That's, 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 that's fallen humanity expressing itself in times of pressure, light pressure. And here Jesus is in the, in the midst of his own pain and exhaustion. And what's he doing? He's, he's lamenting for those who should be lamented for. You got it all wrong. Lament for yourself, not for me. That's a heart that cares in the middle of exhaustion. It's, and it's beautiful. This, this is not the world that we live in. That's the warning. And I just want you to understand that is an expression of care. Uh, we warn people because we love them or we care about them. And there's, by the way, just a bit of a practical application here for us. To warn somebody of something to come that's negative or is going to put them in a place that they don't want to be is a, an expression of love. And uh, we can't, and I, I try to say this as sensitively as possible and hopefully in proportion to other things, but we, we are not loving people as Christians if we are silent when it comes to that day fixed on the calendar in which God will once again pour out his anger on earth. In fact, it's hatred not to say, listen, I was a sinner too under condemnation, but a day is coming when, when, when all of us will have to give an account, and, I, and I, I'm concerned about you, concerned about the eternal well-being of others. And you can't understand the gospel, can't understand the love of God or any of the other wonderful benefits of what Christ has done for us apart from understanding it against the background of God's wrath. And here Jesus is warning as an expression of care, as an expression of love. The next statement he makes has to do with forgiveness. In short, not to read the whole passage, but there's three different categories of people here who mock Jesus in uh, descending order of importance. Rulers are mocking Jesus. Step down. The soldiers are mocking Jesus. And finally, the criminal who's next to him He's mocking Jesus, and ironically enough, they are mocking him with the word salvation or save. Each one of the groups say it. You saved, your, you saved others, save yourself. You saved others, save yourself. You're the Christ of God. Three times, all three categories, from criminal to ruler. And there's a bitter irony in it, right? Because he did save others. But if he saved himself, which we know he has the power to do, then he'd damn everybody else. There wouldn't be a single person ever saved from the wrath to come. But instead, he made a willful choice of love to stay there and to give his life so that others could be saved. And what a, what a, what a I don't know, bitter mockery of, of the amazing immensity of the salvation God is accomplishing through his own son and then to be mocked for it. But in the middle of that, there's no repentance they're not saying, I'm sorry. They're not putting on an act of penance. No, they're in the middle of mocking him. And what, is the, what are the words of Jesus? Or he's praying. He's, and he's, he's praying a desire for forgiveness from the Father, from God himself, on the very people who are mocking and crucifying him. 
praying for his enemies, even without their repentance. That is, uh, that is not like fallen humanity. <laughs> Our first instinct, as you well know, because you're fallen human just like me, is to get even and get satisfaction. God cuts in front of me and flips me the bird, which has happened. It's, it's everything I can not to go, what is uh, fried green tomatoes on the guy and just like hit him in the back of the bumper. <laughs> Little tap, tap, tappy on the gas on my truck, you know. That, that goes through my mind, goes through my heart. That's impulse. And yes, I did see that movie. <laughs> but instead we see, just Father, forgive them for they, they don't know what they do. And like, it's an interesting question. How, how, how does one find, honestly, the, the, the heart to forgive uh, your enemy even when he doesn't repent? And, and I, I think there's two answers to that. Um, one is that, and this is part of point number one, you, you understand that ultimately justice is in God's hands. Um, and when we retain the right of justice, that is we hold on to it, that's what creates the bitterness, anger, and twists us all up inside because we can't let go of it. And, and this too is, a, is a, a, a work of the Spirit in us as people is to, instead of just hiding it or, or burying it or pretending it doesn't exist, this thing, this right to vengeance, is, is we actually offer it up to God saying, okay, you're, you're the judge, I'll give you this ball of anger, this injustice, and I hand it to you. I mean, point one tells us the day of justice is coming, the warning. The other piece that nurtures a sense of compassion, even for people who are not nice people or maybe even mean people or who, who injure you verbally or otherwise is to recognize and see them as, as ignorant. Isn't that that's, that's Jesus' own words? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That is, they're ignorant of what's really happening here. They're blind. They're deaf. They're lost. And, uh, man, I, I have found if... I can maintain the per, uh, perspective on people that, you know, when, when, when unbelieving people do horrible things, in part, in, maybe in large measure, it's because they're blind. They don't know any better, right? I had a friend tell me, and I've, it stuck with me uh, a long time ago. He said, listen, um, you can't blame a, bl- a blind man for walking into a door. It can't say any different. Now, it doesn't mean a blind person who commits sin is, 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 is innocent. That's not the case. But um, people are all around us are lost and blind, doing all kinds of horrible things because they don't know what they're doing. That is, they're, they're spiritually uh, lights out. They don't understand morality. They don't want morality. And to see them as lost people nurtures a sense of compassion. At least it did for Jesus. Now, two quick questions. Did God answer Jesus' prayer here? Father, forgive them. I think the answer is a no and a Yes. No, he didn't. True forgiveness, true reconciling forgiveness, requires repentance before God. And the fact that judgment fell on Jerusalem, as Jesus said it would, means in one sense, because of the hardness of their heart, because they continued to reject the Messiah and continued to reject Jesus, it was a no. But in another sense, you know, you read Acts chapter 2. This is after the resurrection, and Peter's preaching the gospel. And you realize a lot of the people who were there at his preaching were the people who were here and probably involved at some level in, in, in the crucifixion of Jesus. And they hear the message of the gospel of good news and pardon and forgiveness. And, um, and they repent and believe and are pardoned. So they are forgiven, at least those who have come to faith. So I think it's, an, it's a yes and a no. But again, 
in the middle of the pressure cooker, in the middle of all of this, Jesus prays for his enemies. Like that's, that's the heart of God. It, it, the God that I've come to know in the scripture is a God who does not delight in the destruction of the wicked, even though he does destroy the wicked. Uh, he's reluctant to pour out his wrath. He, he, he waits, he mourns, he grieves, and when it happens, it happens in a reluctant sort of way because he has a heart of mercy and love. It's good, good to remember that um, however merciful a human being can be, God is a billion times more merciful than we can be. And just contrast helps me. It gets better. The third word, the saving. Even on the cross, Jesus is still doing the saving, isn't he? Never takes off that mantle because it's part of his heart. It's part of who he is. Colors continuing as they had always been. There's interesting in this text. In chapter 23, no one defends Jesus. Not a single person except one. Only one stands up, and it's not Peter, it's not James, it's not John, it's not the disciples, it's not the Mary, the mother of Jesus, it's, it's not Pilate. Nobody defends him except one person, and that's the criminal right next to him, right? It's ironic. All the religious people condemn him because they're blind, and the only one who actually sees correctly is the criminal right next to him. He does have eyes to see. So one of the criminals is, 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 is joining in the mocking, and verse 40 says, but the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds? But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, that's a declaration. It's, an, it's a firm, forceful statement. I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. This is... This is right here. This is an example of pure gospel and pure grace. I say pure gospel and pure grace because this criminal who's, who's next to him, he knows that he is justly condemned. He knows he deserves it. Now, which criminal do you know who would actually say, yeah, that's me. I deserve what I get. They're all blaming somebody else. It was my foster parents who screwed me up, or it was, it was my past, or it's my ethnicity, or it's something else. It's like, no, at this point, he takes full ownership. It's like, I, we, we, we deserve to be here. I deserve to be hanging from a cross. That's a statement. He has nothing to offer. He has nothing but a pile of sins. He has nothing but a criminal record. That's all he has. He, he, there's, there's, and there's no time to do anything else. There's no time to be baptized. There's no time to go to church. There's no time to go to confession. There's no time to do the rosary. There's no time to go out and walk little old ladies across the street. There's no time to go volunteer at the soup kitchen. There's nothing he can do. Absolutely nothing. He's completely empty, completely blank. There's, there's no additions to his deeds. There's nothing left. Nothing. And yet, with nothing, and worthy of death, he looks at Jesus in faith and says, remember me. There's no altar call. There's no sinner's prayer. He just says, simply says, remember me. When you enter into your kingdom and Jesus in an act of pure grace says today, you know what, in a few minutes, maybe a couple hours, we're going to be together. You and me. Be with me. 
There's only one explanation for that, and that is, that is just pure grace, pure good news. That, that the only way, the only way to find safe harbor in God's coming wrath, the only way to experience that which is most worthy and wonderful and beautiful and loving is to come with nothing and acknowledging I'm deserving of this. I'm owning it. Remember me. And it's a simple remember me. Maybe it's all he could get out. Maybe he didn't know how to pray. Who knows? And Jesus turns around and forcefully tells him the good news. Based upon the fact you have nothing to offer me, and none of us do. I don't. You don't. We don't. Not collectively or individually. And all of us come with our own private and hidden rap sheet and... He says, truly, and he says this to all of us who say, remember me, because I'm in need of something to save me. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's, that's, that's beautiful. I, I hope you've, that's beautiful. That's, that's the heart of God's salvation for us, gracious, salvation by grace alone, through what Christ has done alone. Now, you, let me ask you one more question, and then we'll get to the final one and dial it up and close, close the message. Uh, I, Matt, Gospel of Matthew says that both of the criminals mocked Jesus. Luke tells us only one did, right? Matthew, Luke. Two Gospels record the same events, but one says both criminals mocked Jesus, and Luke says only one did. So is this a contradiction? The, uh, the doubters and cynics would say so. I don't think so. I'm convinced that this isn't an issue of contradiction. It's an issue of transformation. That is, something happened. Let's just say the thief is right here. Jesus is here. Not to imply, of course, that I'm Jesus because I'm standing here. But, you know, um, the thief is here. And he's, he, he's, he's, he, he's watching everything that's taking place. He's able to hear what Jesus says. He's able to see how he acts. He gets to hear a prayer to a father to forgive the people who are mocking him. He's able to hear um, him say um, to John, behold your mother. He's like caring for his mother as he's hanging on the cross. That's a different gospel, but it's one of the words that he uttered. And I'm convinced that, that the angry, bitter, self-justified heart that began at the crucifixion melted over time. Why? Because he watched, and he saw, and he encountered something so pure and so wonderful and so contrary to fallen, selfish humanity, something so immensely merciful and kind that his heart melted. And maybe he heard the rumors about Jesus um, circulating out there, and at this moment realizing he's seeing the beauty and the glory of Christ in the middle of all of this suffering and realizes this is true. It's got to be true. That, that to me is a logical explanation and, and explains why here there's a change of heart where he totally owns his own sin, and then he looks to Jesus in faith because he has seen and experienced something of immense beauty. It ties into the first part, right? What motivates us the most? What changes our heart? Well, coming into contact with something so pure and 
wonderful and awesome as he saw, and he was saved as a result. Someday we get to see this guy. <laughs> it's going to be fun talking about that. Um, and then the final and the climactic moment, of course, is, is the atoning work itself. He was born, he lived for one main purpose, and that was to offer his life as a sacrifice in behalf of and for the sake of us. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice, and the fact that he called out with a loud voice in such an exhausted state tells me that this is a willful giving up of his spirit. He still had some strength in him. Father, into your hands I commit. He hands over his life. The supreme sacrifice, the supreme surrender. Um, and having said that, he breathed his last. Now these two events here, darkness and a ripped veil, those were two God events that affirmed and confirmed um, what the death of Christ did for us. Um, Darkness and the sun losing its light in biblical literature is always a sign, I should say mostly a sign, of God's impending wrath, his judgment coming, dark skies, no sun. The idea being that in this moment, it is the wrath of God moving in on the one so that the many don't have to experience it to provide for us a substitute and a safe haven um, against the coming day of God's displeasure. That's his wrath moving in. He would face it so we didn't have to. And then the flip side of it is there's this torn veil in a temple, and most of you know what that means. Um, it's torn not by human hands or by the hands of angels. It's torn by God himself. And um, that veil that separated holy God from sinful humanity, um, it's like at the death of Jesus, God tore that bad boy up signifying, you know what, there's no, longer, um, there's no longer separation between us and him. But now through Christ, we have full and complete access, a foundation of a brand new relationship with him where we can know him and know he's not angry with us anymore and grow in our knowledge of him and know he loves us and have no fear of that coming judgment. Why? Because judgment was passed on to Jesus in place of us, and now we have free access to pray to him to be loved by him and love him in return. Church, this is, um, this is, this, this is, this is what I see in this uh, chapter. Amidst all of the darkness and death, I see, I see something so contrary to what we see in the world. So, so beautiful and worthy and glorious. Um, not a second of this do we find Jesus ever absorbing in his own pain or his own future death, but always giving himself out for others. That is beauty. And the question I, I pose to you in closing is, is this, this. Does your heart for Christ, by that I mean your affection, your desire, your drive, does it exceed your drive for a baby or a car or a house. The, the heartbeat of the Christian faith finds its 
motivational center, supreme motivational center in the glory and the wonder of who Jesus is for us and never stops drinking and, and taking it in. And if the question, if the, if the answer is no, no, it's not, you know, it's not. Well, we have something to pray about, don't we? Because, because this is where it should be, is this is the fuel of our, our fires. This is the passion of our, our Christianity comes into seeing and beholding and loving and standing in amazement of God's wonders in who Christ is. And I don't know, maybe we've lost something in the church. Maybe the confession's still there, but the passion's gone. I mean, the logic is true. We're hardwired to be motivated by glory and beauty. Do we find him supremely glorious and beautiful? And if not, I think the word would be, it's time to humble our hearts and repent. And if, it's, and if, 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 it, if it is yes, he is at some level, then really the, I guess the challenge is don't ever stop expanding by the work, work of the Spirit your understanding of the vast, amazing glory and beauty and worthiness of who Jesus is. This is, this is his heart. In this moment, Lord, I ask that you would search hearts, reveal hearts. You are amazing. Your grace is beautiful and pure and marvelous. And we pray as your church that if we have grown lukewarm, that you would graciously and mercifully answer our prayers to open once again the eyes of our hearts to behold, to, to run after, to be drawn to, to trust in, to love, to worship um, the one who gave everything for us. And we pray that in his name and for the passion and the witness and the health of your church. Amen.